You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week, the conversation starts with some provocative films from the cult label Something Weird Video, the revenge movie Johnny Firecloud, and a couple of films from the one and only Doris Wishman. My adventurous guest is Adam Perone, a Los Angeles-based programmer for the Sundance Film Festival, whom I recently worked with as an editor on his terrific essay about indigenous cinema in the U.S. We also talk about the movie Straight Time, starring Dustin Hoffman, Billy Woodbury's Bless Their Little Hearts, an L.A. Rebellion film, and Kent McKenzie's The Exiles, a unique time capsule of Los Angeles. Adam is also a member of the Cousin Collective, which supports indigenous artists and has a program featured in this year's documentary Fortnite at MoMA. So I also ask him about how an incredible personal discovery in a silent movie informed a film that he directed. Let's go now to our conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is an episode where we'll be talking about recent viewing habits. Please welcome programmer Adam Perone. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Nick. You are currently the associate director of the Indigenous program at Sundance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I do that. It's a, a program that's been around since the founding of the Institute. Redford, when he founded it, kind of noticed like specifically from his work in Westerns that he hadn't really come across any Indigenous directors or anything. So he kind of wanted to to change that. And so we've, uh, we've been around since the founding of the Institute. It's been about like, we've gone through sort of supporting about four generations of filmmakers. So yeah, we're, that's where we're at right now. And then on top of that as well, too, I, um, I'm also one of the, the co-founders of uh, Cousin. It's a, a collective that's uh, myself, um, Alexander Lazarovich, Sky Pinka, and Adam Khalil. And we support like indigenous filmmakers internationally that are working a bit more in kind of the experimental space. And I'll just quickly mention uh, that in this year's documentary Fortnite at MoMA, there's actually a program, a, a cousin program in there. Lots of hard, hard to find stuff as well, too. So definitely, if you can track it down, uh, definitely check it out. So, I mean, just quickly, I'm always kind of curious, like what your rhythms are as, as just a programmer and, and a viewer. I mean, I, I would guess that maybe things are in a bit of a downtime since Sundance was relatively recently, uh, just a you know, month and a half ago. Yeah, I think like for Sundance, we really kind of start kicking back into watching stuff around June. And then it's more or less kind of a marathon up until the late fall. But yeah, it's like pretty much from that time period, it's really hard for me to watch like newer stuff. Just like I, I'm on the short film programming team. So just like the volume of, of stuff we have to watch, it's all pretty like like every hour in the day is accounted for to a certain extent. So pretty much since February, I've kind of just been enjoying my time, just like watching a bunch of stuff. I uh, checked out Monster Hunter as well. I, I did indeed paid $20 to, to watch it from home. <laughs> I sort of have like a running list of stuff that like when I'm that time period, that's just sort of blocked out. I always kind of like keep a note of some stuff like there's something weird uh, title. I sort of made this like weird sort of like self-imposed commitment to just try to get through a bunch of those titles just because a lot of them aren't like super available online. Like it's, I mean, I guess you can, it, it takes a little bit more digging, but like I always knew about that label. I just like never really got into it, but I think it was when they had that, that sale this past summer of, um, I think it was like the founder who had passed away. It was up in Seattle. They were like just selling this like warehouse full of a bunch of his equipment and stuff. And then I kind of, from, from there, I kind of more or less sort of was like, Oh, I need to like check out all these, all these titles and stuff. Yeah. It seemed like there was suddenly like a, a kind of bonanza of stock and a, it's like just a world of nothing but niche. I, I was so interested to, to see that you were watching movies from, from there. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about that. What was one of your favorites that you've you've seen from there? One that I'd, I'd known about for a while and like, you know, being out in LA and stuff like, you know, there's the New Beverly Theater, Tarantino's uh, theater, but I'd, I'd heard about this one title a while ago, I think, and he had a print of it, I think, called Johnny Firecloud. I, I guess you could say it's like one of the closest things. I mean, there's a couple of films that kind of fall into this camp too, but like, I mean, I'm, Native American, but like, you know, we never really had something that was like a true equivalent to black exploitation, but there were like 
a number of films kind of in that era that kind of came close to that, like, like the Billy Jack films. And there's a couple others as well, but like this Johnny Firecloud one was something that like, I'd always been pretty fascinated by one, because it was also like, it was one of Ralph Meeker's last films. And it's a little sad to see him in, in the film the way that he is, but it's essentially the story of this native American guy somewhere in California, like a reservation out here. And he's named Johnny Firecloud because he was born around the time I think that they were doing atom bomb testing, which was like an actual thing that happened near a lot of reservations. But he comes back, it's either from Vietnam or he's just like serving somewhere in, in the military. And he comes back in this racist town that he's from. And, you know, like Ralph Meeker is sort of like the white racist sort of mob kingpin there with sort of his cohort of, of like, you know, these racist thugs. And, you know, they're just kind of harassing, I believe it's like his uncle or his grandfather, who's like painted in like a very sort of stereotypical, like Indian, like alcoholic, who's like at a bar and like people are making fun of him and stuff. And they're joking about like lynching this older guy. And they like, you know, they tie a noose around him, they hang him from a tree, but he's like on the bed of a truck. And it's like just a joke as far as like the racist sort of mob is sort of getting their kicks. And then something happens where like the truck moves or something like that. And then like the guy actually you know, he actually gets killed. And then like, that's sort of the thing that like sets Johnny Firecloud off. He goes on this like rampage of, you know, kind of going one by one through like every single person that was involved in, in this uh, thing that went awry. And, and then I think it's his sister, or his cousin is played by Sashin Littlefeather, who, it, you know, I think it was what the 72 Oscars or 71, the one that um, yeah. Brando won for the Godfather. Uh, but the the Native American activist who um, was in his place, it was she plays this this character who in a really sort of like brutal scene, like like you know sexually assaulted by this mob, and then that's another thing that sets Johnny off, and he goes off after everyone. But yeah, it, it's interesting. It was always something that was interesting to me because it's like something that like you know clearly it's exploitation. I mean, there's going to be stuff that hasn't aged particularly well, but it's like as an exploitation film, it's interesting to see something that i mean i guess in a lot of ways it was very similar to black exploitation where you know there's issues that were like plaguing a lot of these communities at the time and still do but like how they made a movie that was like specifically like that so it's it's an interesting piece just because it's it's one of those things where to my knowledge there wasn't like a ton of stuff made from then but um i mean it's got such a a great title like how can you turn down somebody named johnny fireclaw yeah no, I mean, it's it's really remarkable. I mean, you know, as as you say, it's I mean, it's definitely a, an exploitation movie. But I, I mean, looking at the scene where his grandfather donned kind of ceremonial uh, regalia to confront Colby, uh, you know, as the movie puts it as one, again, kind of cor- corny, uh, one chief to, to another. And so they they managed to have this lynch mob, basically, of his cronies. And, but the way they film it, I, I thought, and I kept seeing this happen throughout the movie. They cut to this, sh- like one of the first shots they cut to is, is, one of, is just a woman in the crowd that's laughing there. And it just, for me, like that's, that sort of shot, that's how lynch mobs were. You know, there would be people watching for as if it was just an event, you know, just like a picnic. And I felt like there's always that kind of awareness in the movie, even at the same time as it's, you know, pushing all of the buttons of like, you know, vengeance um, and kind of working the audience into a frenzy by showing them something so horrific. But at the same time, there's a at times a remarkable sensitivity to how people are, how they're feeling about it. Like there are these long dialogues between, especially between uh, Johnny Firecloud and the sheriff. Yeah. Where I mean, it's kind of remarkable. I, I mean, what did what did you make make of that? Am I going? Am I like reading too much into this? I. There's kind of something where it's like not to not to speak for every indigenous person in the U S but like that there is something that it sort of taps into the experience of the extent where it's like, I don't want to say like necessarily like politically incorrect. I mean, even though it is, but it's not necessarily in that way, but there's kind of this idea that like, I think indigenous people are somehow like somehow more accepting of a lot of, you know, like they say in the tagline, the, the sort of leaning on them and stuff. And, um, and I think it's it's interesting because it's like again, sort of even like with the lynch the lynch mob scene or like a lot of the other stuff, it's like a lot of these people think it's like really funny until like it's very clear that the person who's the object of the mocking it isn't going that way, but they kind of keep going that way. But then once it goes too far, they kind of real they themselves realize it. Like it's not it's almost kind of like they're playing a part, so to speak, where they're just like, oh yeah, like this is like what 
like Indians are used to, you know, like this is just like kind of what they're for. And I mean, cause it's like, you, you kind of constantly get this thing, I think with the exception of like Ralph Meeker, where like everyone is kind of like profusely apologizing once they realize they went too far and, but it's like not enough. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting just because I think it's like this thing where everyone thinks they're in on the same joke, but nobody kind of thinks it's funny until like, there's like a certain point where it crosses and like, nobody's like kind of somebody who like holds their ground on any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's apologizing, but they're always like, it got out of hand and it's like, well, <laughs> it's like, what could possibly go wrong? We were just playing around. It's like, yeah, it's interesting. Like there's kind of a sub genre of, films i mean i guess this would technically probably fit into it too of native american veterans coming home and it's like there's like a, you know a pretty big basis in it like i mean within the armed forces like proportionally compared to other communities native americans are you know they serve at a much higher number compared to everyone else and like you know then there's obviously the whole irony of like you know like serving in the armed forces of like the people that are colonizing you and like what does that mean you know and like people coming back and sort of being disillusioned by, you know, any sort of idea of that. And it, it kind of goes back to a thing of like Ira Hayes, World War II, and kind of like the raising of the flag on um, on Iwo Jima. And um, hmm. they've made films about and like kind of similar, you know, from that time, there's kind of some films of, uh, you know, just kind of these Native American veterans coming back, like not being able to adjust into society or like, or just being like really pissed off in the case of Johnny Firecloud too, you know? There's the whole thing too in, in Johnny Firecloud of how Johnny served, he like did his time and stuff like that. And then there's kind of this other, the sheriff who like, they have a bit of a history. I think just, they kind of make mention of that. Just, I think probably kind of like growing up in the same town and stuff, but yeah, it's interesting. Cause it's like the film, I, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's ahead of its time, but I mean, it's definitely kind of, when you look at it now, it's sort of this thing of like two people from kind of like different minority communities kind of being pitted against each other, even though they don't necessarily have an issue with it. It's just sort of the, the larger system that's kind of placed them as such. That's also something that's you know, written into this the script. There's a scene at the end with the sheriff and the daughter of Colby, yeah, the, yeah. the Ralph Meeker character, where they seem to have common ground and like they're both escaping the situation in their respective ways. Um, I mean, I just constantly was surprised by by this movie that there would be these moments of these little moments of solidarity and these things that you know i wasn't expecting in the context of a movie that's also like trying to push all your buttons by having you know horrible things happen and having like a vengeful heroic character which is not to say that on the level of uh at entertainment it you know it's also like moments yeah. of action when he's going around you know meeting out vengeance in in a variety of ways those are all kind of interestingly staged they find a little surprise you know each time of yeah totally they're always like pulling back the camera to show you what the latest setup of his latest bit of vengeance is uh so i mean yeah because it's like there's kind of the four things from what i remember there's like i think the dude that gets scalped in the beginning which i was like okay i, I was like i know that's coming like that, that's unavoidable they're gonna get to that and then and then there's the the dude who gets the the bag of snakes wrapped around his head, which is like awful. And um, yeah, I think there's the dude, there's the other guy that's in the trailer that gets blown up. And then sorry, I know I'm spoiling the, the whole film for everyone, but um, <laughs> but then the one at the end, which to me was like the most kind of comparatively to all the other ones, it was the one that requires the most effort is the one where he like buries the guy up to his neck. And I think he like gouges his eyes out or something like that. But <laughs> to me it's just like one of those ones where it, it's like whoa but also just like when you just think about it you're like so he's in the middle of the desert and this guy's clearly digging a hole that's like deep enough vertically for this guy just to to fit right there but <laughs> i also like i like have not been able to get this line out of my head but like i think it's right it's either right before or right after the lynching scene one of the white thugs kind of the main like right hand man <laughs> has this line that, and I, I've gone back to it a couple times just to make sure I'm like hearing it right. And I'm, I don't think I'm messing this up, but he yells at the sheriff, I think. He says something like, one day you and you and me is going to tangle assholes. And I'm like, what What does that even mean? It was like the most crazy threat, but <laughs> well, I've like seen the same thing too. So I was like, okay, it's not just me. Like, it's not just like Zoomier, you know, like where I, I think somebody's saying something totally different, but. Yeah, that it's one of those like straight face tough guy threats, and you're just like, wait, what? But it's also like it makes me kind of think too of like 
if the script said something different or if it was like those typical sort of exploitation things where it's like an older person who's like, yeah, this is all what, you know, what the kids are saying now. And like, or if it was something where it was kind of like, you know, the William H. Macy thing in Boogie Nights where he's like, yeah, my, what is it? My, my wife has a, an ass in her cock or something like that. And they just like kept it in, the, in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of, there, there are a lot of lines that kind of, kind of stuck with me. I mean, just one thing where the, what I guess the deputy is annoyed about being sent off to just go on patrol uh, just so that he's out of the way. And he's, and he comes back and the, and the sheriff is like, well, how, how was it? And he's like, it's fine. No one stole the street. <laughs> Yeah. yeah and it's like they're in the middle of the desert too so that's the whole thing right too. so you're just like what is going what what the hell are these guys talking about yeah yeah then they're also there there are these things where yeah i was surprised by the emotion in, in it the sheriff yeah. is about to go off and he's finally pushed into you know going out to to find johnny Firecloud. and the deputy's like you know i don't know why you're not telling me what's what's inside and what you're thinking and, and the sheriff's like you don't deserve someone like me. It was something like very much like that. And I was like, wow. It's interesting too. I mean, like talking to you a bit more how like, I mean, I, I hate to use the term like Western for something like this. Cause it's like, I mean, sure. There's some of that baked in there. Like it's a film that exists because in some ways of the Western, but I think it's really interesting because like when you kind of look at it, I think their characters are very much kind of playing a part of kind of like larger archetypes that, you know, they, they think they have to to be because it, it, nobody actually wants to be doing this. It's like they're kind of like they've they've gotten into like a trap that they realize they have to just keep going forward in. Like there's no sort of way out of it. So it's it's interesting in that sense because it's like yeah, like once that line gets crossed, no one's sort of cheering to to go on. Everyone's just kind of afraid, and they're just like, oh shit, we actually have to be the people we've been saying we are. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. That's definitely something else the movie just kind of gets uh, is that kind of cycle. That's that vicious cycle that everyone's in. Not that that's an excuse, but it, yeah, you can see why it's hard for people to to break out, out of it. Um, I was sort of curious about the, the actor who plays Johnny Firecloud, Victor Mojica. From what I like looked up, I don't think he's actually Native American. I think he's like Puerto Rican, but... Yeah, it's weird. He was kind of like, I think he was just in a couple things of like that era. And then that was kind of it. Yeah, I mean, he's interesting, too, because I think he's like, when it comes to sort of like the native exploitation type stuff, I mean, I definitely think he's like a better version of what that kind of character is versus, you know, the more Billy Jack kind of guy who's going for like stoicism and stuff like that. Like, I think there's something about his performance where, which is, I mean, for an exploitation film, it's kind of doubly odd but i mean i think for him he's really kind of just like a person which works really well like there's nothing he does that's sort of like a stereotypical kind of like signifier that he is indigenous if that makes sense it's like there's a lot of you know those tropes and i don't know they say something or they you know they present themselves in a certain way i mean at no point is he wearing like a headdress or anything like that he's just kind of like this dude who just shows back up to his town and then and then decides he's going to kill everybody for you know messing with him yeah no, and I did look him up and I see yeah, I saw he was born in New York. I think actually also the actor who plays his grandfather was also born in New York, I think. Yeah. Kind of a yeah, just a fact of of the of the industry, I, I guess, a whole whole other thing. Uh one last note on this. I have to say at at a certain point I did think of uh No Country for Old Men. Uh, I just felt like the resemblance <laughs> was too much to be entirely accidental. And I know the Cone brothers, they have such a clear, like total recall for like character actors of all sorts. Yeah. And even even down to having the the haircut yeah, yeah. and the denim. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Denim, the kind of like bullish haircut and even kind of like the eyes. Like he just looks sort of like the Anton Sugar character, like if, you know, if he'd spent more time out in the sun or something like that, but I totally didn't even like connect that until you just said that. But yeah, it's sort of like this, uh, I don't want to say like a nicer version, but like, I guess you could say just like somebody who's not a straight psychopath. It's like, he's still killing a bunch of people, but he has like a perfectly like valid reason for doing so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Anton is just the pure exploitation uh, side <laughs> of things, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it kind of, in some ways that like, you kind of saying that he's almost kind of like the Christopher Nolan version of Johnny Firecloud, where it's like him overly explaining, being overly dark about who this, how this character would even be possible. <laughs> right, right. And then my last bit of trivia there is that, I mean, I did notice one of the producer's first name is Anton. 
So uh, who knows? Anyway, someday, uh, someday yeah. we'll, we'll we'll ask them. Well, let's talk about um, an, another movie that that you saw. I mean, maybe we could talk about another title from something weird because I think it ties in a little bit because there's also an awareness there that's going into making it. Um, Doris Wishman, I mean, definitely a director who is a figure I've kind of always been interested in. Weirdly, I I kind of remember like in high school somehow seeing part of a retrospective of her in the early 90s. You've watched, I guess, one or two of hers. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I mean, the two I saw were Indecent Desires and My Brother's Wife. And I mean, I don't know how you can say no to those titles, but um, <laughs> like I was reading that too. So uh, I think KJ Ralph Miller out here at the UCLA Film and Television Archive, she'd posted up something. And I guess <laughs> I didn't know this until kind of like after I was like going back through her films and stuff. But like, I think her last film that was released when she was alive was called like dildo heaven and that's just like <laughs> blows my mind it's just like doris fishman like again it's like unbeatable titles but um and i'll just i'll just drop in a quick a quick shout out to the her memorable appearance on on conan o'brien uh alongside roger ebert which everyone fortunately can watch online yeah so in indecent desires there's kind of this this sort of like leering kind of pervert dude who finds like a doll in a trash can i think he's kind of a, a peeping tom who is sort of checking out the the main woman and something I, th- this is the part that i kind of missed but um essentially he kind of has something similar to kind of like a voodoo doll type power like with this doll and that woman so like he'll kind of like be caressing the doll and she feels it and you know she kind of she gets creeped out by it and then it kind of plays into the ending as well too and then my brother's wife is um it's kind of a bit of a throwback towards um more like noir kind of stuff so it's like you know the guy comes in this case it's his brother and like he's spending some more time with like the brother's wife while he's out and then they kind of like form a a bond and you know it turns into turns illicit pretty quick and then you know then at the end it's more kind of like are you gonna leave are you gonna come with me and then you know it all goes goes to hell but her work is really interesting i think Cause I, same thing. She was only somebody I'd like kind of read about and knew about. I think like John Waters had mentioned some stuff about her. And, and again, too, I'd seen like the Conan video going around and kind of just people talking about it. And I think Peggy Awish did that um, book through, I think it was light industry. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I, it was, she was somebody like I knew about. And I also like, I, I want to say it was like when I was in film school, I tried to get through a bunch of like Russ Meyer films. Like they had a bunch in sort of the, the school library. So I just, you know, it was like harder to get a hold of them at the time. I don't think like they were out on DVD just yet. But so it was interesting, like seeing somebody working in sexploitation and especially a woman who knows, I mean, they have all like, you know, the kind of the sexploitation-y type stuff, um, you know, just the nudity and stuff. But there's something that's very kind of clear about, it's always kind of an indictment on on men. And also I think, the way that it centers a lot of the female characters and specifically their perspective. Cause it's always, I mean, kind of with the exception of like my brother's wife, like indecent desires, it's, it's absolutely kind of about this woman. That's, you know, quite literally her life and sort of her well being and everything is like literally in the hands of this creep who kind of, you know, gets off by like caressing this doll in his house. It's like, it's really bizarre, but I mean, it's like, it's really interesting watching her work too. Like where, I haven't really been able to like figure out what like what the term for this would be, but it's like there's something about like films made in that era where like they're shot with a much wider lens because you can just tell like the people are like you can see you know the camera person like moving in and out and it just it's it saves time on them like focusing or things being out of focus, but there's like such a specific look to it where it's it's almost kind of like a much cheaper version of I am Cuba or something like that where there's mm. kind of this black and white sort of fish-eyed border like not all the way fish-eyed but like this this much wider kind of look at bodies and faces and stuff that is something that i i don't really think it has that to my knowledge and stuff that i've seen it's never really kind of existed outside of that period of time where it's just like such a specific look and i think like her films visually to me at least i, I find them to be like quite beautiful in that sense where it's there's just something where it's something that could not be filmed at like any other time. And also too, there's not like, there's nothing ironic about her films. I don't, I mean, at least with those two that I had seen, 
it's not really like tongue in cheek. Like it's meant to, I mean, I guess, you know, it was meant to excite people back in the day, but yeah, there's just like something really off putting about those films in a way that I find like really interesting. Uh, yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned about the, the lens. Uh, I think that's so true. It's just, it kind of intensifies the luridness of it, but it also has a way of making it feel very much like you're in, in the room and that it's very real, but it's also like a little, uh, it's a little grotesque, but not too much. Um, I was just watching a little of uh, Indecent Desires. I think maybe where the creep is doing his first uh, telekinetic fondling. Yeah. Uh, and you know she's about to, to serve dinner to her, her boyfriend. And you're right. It has, a, has just an uncanny power to it. It's so disturbing. I mean, it just feels like such a violation, uh, which of course, yeah. if I was... a if you know for the audience for some part of the audience that's part of the thrill i guess but you watch it and you're like wow that seems like a really good representation of what it's like for someone to be staring at you in an awful way you know she manages to make that connection um in a in a way you wouldn't you wouldn't i don't know it's almost like something that cronenberg could have done a riff on as well or something totally yeah i mean there's like the whole thing too i think especially with that film like just the idea of agency over your own body there's like something about it now where it's like again if you were to make that film now there's really two versions of it where there's like most likely kind of like something close to torture porn or you go like the john waters way where it's just something that's so off the wall and like it's just some dude like you know fondling a, a doll but i think that like the way that she she does it is that it's like you know i mean it, yeah sure it gets to the the nudity in in the film i mean that's kind of you know sort of it's it's charge and stuff, but there's something that's specifically about how unpleasant that film is in a way, but like in a way that's, that's very kind of intentional. Like it's not, it's not like an afterthought or it's just something that just feels like it's kind of slapped together. Like in, in a way, I think similar to like a lot of like Russ Meyer films, to be honest, it's there for like one thing. And like, you know, they have like some, some great sort of like catchy lines or like instances and stuff, but like the intention's always there up front, but like anything that's beyond any any sort of commentary that it, it offers just feels like kind of an accident, so to speak, with the the Myers films. But I think like with the Doris Wishman stuff, it's always I always feel like it's the commentary that sort of infuses everything. It's almost kind of like the opposite, the opposite approach in a lot of ways. And I think that that's part of the reason why like it feels like such a creepy film that happens to have like nudity in it that it, still feels like a little bit weird just given the context that it's presented in i i, I was also just thinking of you know a couple films by joe sarno mm. I, I think they showed him at anthology like i don't know 10 years ago but there's also a bit of commentary in there and also some of the kind of visual intelligence going into it i'll, I'll always remember in in the sarno films uh he i don't know he, he had the, at one point had this technique where both people in a shot would be staring at the camera um, like it's almost like it was almost like a riff on a Bergman double um, yeah. close up. So uh, yeah, obviously they're they're thinking about things, and and I just want to make sure that uh, you know people know that when I reference um, uh, Doris Wishman's appearance on Conan, it's not because I think that you know I think what's happening, what's great about that appearance is that clearly she's supposed to be the butt of the joke, but everyone else uh, kind of turns into her plaything, um, <laughs> so that's why that's yeah. a satisfying thing. Yeah. So that is um, Indecent Desires, a, a, a Doris Wishman joint. Now we can kind of just sort of jump tracks entirely, although we're, we're staying in the same decade. Straight Time, mm -hmm. which I'm really glad to, uh, you know, happened to be something you'd seen because it's, it's a movie I've been meaning to catch up with again. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen it since I saw it on probably VHS or something. What did you think of it? I thought I was really kind of floored by it i mean it was like i hadn't really like heard that much about it before i knew and i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name right but ula grossbard the director i was somewhat sort of tangentially like familiar with his work when i was at the the film trader at lacma we did this talk with um erwin winkler and he had done ula grossbard had done true confessions the de niro and robert duvall film but this i think was before that and it was just like this really interesting thing. Cause like, I'm not like the biggest Dustin Hoffman fan. I think it's, I don't think he's like a bad actor. I think he's just like, there's just always something about him that I can never totally like place. 
for me, he always kind of felt like he was playing somewhat of a similar character. And I think it's, you know, I mean, he has his, his stuff from like this era, which I think is really good in retrospect, but I think it, just kind of growing up in the nineties, I was kind of just more familiar with his work then. And that's kind of like how I always had seen Dustin Hoffman. But I think like with this, it was really interesting to see him play something that was like just totally against type. Essentially the film is, it's about this convict who just gets released, Max Denbo. And essentially it's his time trying to go straight. Like once he gets out, you know, he's working with a parole officer. He's kind of trying to get on his feet and get a job. And he meets Teresa Russell at this job agency. She's like a person working there and they kind of develop a relationship. And then he reconnects with uh, Gary Busey. Um, and Gary Busey is like really great in this too. They established that they knew each other before jail. I think they kind of were like growing up doing crime together. And uh, he reconnects with him. And then kind of like once he reconnects with him, that's kind of where everything starts to unravel a bit. And I, the thing I keep thinking about with this film is like there's such kind of like a distance between the Max Denbo character and like even just the way like that Dustin Hoffman plays him where you never like totally get into his head, but it really works in that sense. Like there's always just sort of this thing of like you never really until the end, like there's kind of this freeze frame kind of thing at the end he's just kind of like this really sort of like uncrackable character. Like they kind of go about him, you know, from the angles of like his friends, from like what he's really good at in terms of crime and like, uh, you know, the Teresa Russell character, there's just sort of like a wall that's there. And I think it's like, once you kind of figure out by the end, why he's doing all this stuff, it's like, it's really heartbreaking. I think I've watched it like two more times since it played on TCM a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, it's just been a film I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, you're the beginning, you think it's going to become kind of like a socially conscious drama of seeing this guy getting back on his feet. And it's almost like Hoffman's character is playing into that role or playing that role as well. You know, he's saying, I mean, he's saying the things I guess he would like to happen, you know, that he's just trying to get a job. But there's this some part of him that he keeps picking at as well. And that finally, it's like a loose thread that finally he pulls and, and unravels and that goes up all the way to the point of, you know, one of the heists where he's just keeps spending too much time, keeps spending too much time. He has to get this one, you know, this one piece and this jewelry store, just this thing of him just kind of undermining himself and having this temper. Um, I thought a little bit of uh, Lenny, I yeah. guess, on almost on the other end of, of, of the decade. Um, and then actually I thought of The Graduate just because they have this montage of his <laughs> mug shots. Yeah, totally. And I swear, you know, one of the mugshots, the date on the mugshot is like the year of the graduate, I think. I don't know, maybe I got the year wrong, but I just thought like that's the the path, the road not taken if, uh, you know, Benjamin. <laughs> it's interesting too, because it's like one of the things like I was thinking about, like I want to say it was probably really around the second or third watch I was doing of this is that it's like, you know, having people in my own family that have had like, you know, like substance abuse issues or something. It's like, it's very much kind of like a similar dynamic with his character where it's like, even when he does like these horrible things in the end, it's like, he's kind of not necessarily a bad person. It's just kind of like one of those things where it's like, he has this compulsion to do this stuff because it's just sort of like a part of like who he is at this point. I mean, you could look at, yeah, the same thing where it's like, if he were you know, getting out of rehab and trying to be sober and then like, you know, stuff kind of happens and he goes off on the side, but his performance is so smart in the sense that like your expectation is that he's going to have some sort of major blow up and explain, you know, how he likes being bad or things like that. But the whole time it's just like Dustin Hoffman is kind of just talking through like clenched teeth the entire time. And like, it's just like him throughout just trying to not really wanting to be who he is but also like at a certain point there's just kind of like a like a resignation to it i think i, I don't know and i think just the rest of the cast too is really great where it's like yeah Teresa russell's amazing and gary Busey and like kind of an early performance of like jake Busey who plays his son kathy bates plays his wife and yeah harry dean stanton too another great role by him um and uh and emmett walsh as well too kind of always plays yeah he's someone who always kind of i feel like every film with him in it he's always you know plops behind some sort of desk or something like that like that's like that's what he does in some ways but really great film and it's so funny you say that because that's like exactly i actually wrote a piece about not him but like about it was a series that was called that guy <laughs> you remember that yeah so that was like a dream 
a dream feature to write because I basically got to like call up, all, you know, all these people. And, and one of them was M. Emmett Walsh, who, you know, to his eternal credit, immediately started ragging on me and making fun of me, which was just a privilege. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the thing. He's the guy who's like between you and something else, you know. His environment always looks the same. It's always like, you know, he's been at the same job and sitting in the same seat for the past like three decades. And he's kind of more interested in messing around with you because he's got nothing better to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is kind of random, but, you know, one thing I discovered just talking about the cast, uh, Teresa Russell, weirdly, I realized that I had watched the movie on her birthday, which I found out when I went to the IMDb. That was weird. So maybe there's some uh, there's some kismet in our talking about this right at this point. But I had the same too. It was like I think it was. Yeah, I don't know if you know Harry Eskin. He's a an archivist out here in L.A. But he he always sort of posts up scans he does of like of different film prints and stuff like that that he's come across and stuff like that. But he posted up something and it was the same thing. It was like I saw it was a day later and I was like, oh, crazy! I didn't know I was watching it on her birthday either. So it kind of worked out. Yeah. So, well, that, yeah, that's straight time. Lulu Grossbard, who had a career in theater. I kind of remember also that there was some story about straight time where Dustin Hoffman was supposed to direct it, but then stopped after a day. And and then Ulu Grossbard came on. No, that makes sense. Because I remember I when I was looking up some stuff beforehand, it said like directed by Dustin Hoffman, but then I couldn't find any, I couldn't tell if it was like a co-direction situation, but then I was like, oh, that makes sense. I didn't know about this until I talked to a friend of mine, but Michael Mann was one of the, he was like an uncredited screenwriter on this. So it's like kind of early, which kind of makes sense when you watch the film, it, it really kind of feels up his alley. Yes, that totally does. Um, and I did think of that because, I mean, in a way it's almost like you get to see, it's one of those things where when you have, they're not remakes, but it's almost like when you have a remake and you get to see what would two like very clearly, very different, you know, uh, filmmaker eyes, do with similar material or, or sort of similar material. And yeah, I mean, in Thief, you know, Michael Mann, he turns what's kind of like a psychological thing in straight time or almost sociological, psychological thing into like a manifesto. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, interesting comparison. Um, yeah, you can imagine Michael Mann working on, on straight time and then, you know, thinking, uh, you know, can't wait till I get to do this my way entirely or something. Yeah, I think also like another interesting point. So, you know, like obviously like, you know, I work at Sundance and, you know, you always hear kind of stories of different artists from kind of like the 90s that went through some of the labs and stuff. And like, I guess um, Tarantino saw this. I think he saw a copy of it when he was up at the like resort when he was doing one of the the Sundance screenwriting labs or directing labs. And uh, like he was super into it, but then also like, the writer of the book that Straight Time was based off of, um, Eddie Bunker, who shows up in the film, he's like one of those guys at the bar when Dustin Hoffman goes and he's like kind of looking for a job. I guess it was like kind of based off of his like true life story or something. But then later on, Eddie Bunker is the guy who um, played Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, right. And I, yeah, and I think it was his book or memoir that fed into uh, Straight Time. That's interesting. Wait, so you mean Tarantino watched um straight time he had mentioned i think seeing it at the the lab like i think i don't know how it is still now but i think like at the time like there was just kind of like an archive of stuff that i think like robert redford had like some of his films and stuff like that like not his not films of him in it but just like a collection that he had of some stuff and i think that that's like the legend and like from what i've read in different interviews and stuff by tarantino i think that maybe he saw it the first time there and that's kind of if he would have been at the labs that would have been with reservoir dogs so it was i think i don't know maybe somehow he kind of like made the crossover with eddie bunker and it's cool too because i think eddie bunker is also kind of like this guy he's kind of like like Bukowski, like a similar sort of like LA sort of like underworld type person. who's like, a, he's a little bit more known in kind of like LA than he is outside of, outside of the city. But it's, it really shows, I think like, you know, in kind of the locations where a lot of that film was shot, which is like around the Westlake area, which used to be a pretty like affluent area kind of in the 19 teens and twenties. And then it, um, it kind of went down and like, it's like a lot of like it's to this day, I mean, it, there's like a lot of like kind of like halfway houses there as well, too. But then there's also like a very sort of like heart and center of L.A.'s like Central American community, immigrant community and stuff, too. But it's interesting, like watching that film and seeing how much that part of L.A. still looks like that. 
um, at least within that area. But yeah, it's it's a really cool kind of it's a good like time capsule of kind of the area and seeing what's changed and what hasn't. Oh, that's really interesting. For some reason, that reminds me. I read some comment somewhere. Someone was convinced that the bank. Oh yeah. You know, you know what I'm going to say that it was it was in one of one of the Michael Mann movies, maybe in Heat. Does that even make sense? I don't know. Yeah, I think it, I mean that makes sense. It's kind of like, and I know exactly where that that place is because, like, on when I do my make my commute to the office, um, I get off on the subway and then I hop over to a bus, and like the bus stop is right in front of that place. So like I can recognize it from the lights outside and kind of like the interior and stuff as well. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's probably right. If you kind of know that building, you can recognize it in kind of the background of a lot of stuff they either shoot from that period or like when they try to make it look like this the 70s like i know zodiac used the same kind of bank like you can notice it like there's this part where jake gyllenhaal and i think it's like robert downey jr walking and you can notice it from like the lights and stuff oh cool oh that's interesting one other thing that's cool about those that sort of final sequence where they do the robbery goes sour the last one that they do is the pursuit when the, the cops are, are chasing them through these back alleys, that was kind of a sequence just, just from an action movie standpoint, um, really reminded me uh, of Point Break. You know, that, that, that kind of foot chase that people rightfully praise a lot because it's like this breakneck handheld chase through like people's backyards and alleys and everything. This, that, this one almost seemed like a, I don't know, some precursor to it. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because it's like kind of like a lot of those sort of bungalows and kind of like townhomes in that area, which I kind of know that it's kind of like by Wilshire. A lot of those buildings still haven't changed. So like those like it's they, they still look nice, but, you know, I mean, they're all kind of like from, I'd say, probably the 30s. Yeah, 20s, 30s, maybe even the 40s. It's weird seeing I, I think it's like a very sort of like West Coast version of if this film had been shot in New York, they would have been, you know, very sort of like, you know, just like alleyways and stuff like that. But because it's LA, everything's like white, you know, there's tons of bushes everywhere and like everything's just super green. And um, I've been thinking a lot about that too, the the scene when um, there's something that's almost kind of like a Michael Mann movie in that where Harry Dean Stanton is kind of like trying to hop the fence and he gets shot and then sort of like falls down and he just sort of lays there and then like Dustin Hoffman kind of like, you know, he doesn't run just yet. He's kind of just like crawling and you can see it's kind of like this moment where he doesn't want Harry Dean Stanton's like kind of in the life, so to speak, the, the same one that Dustin Hoffman is. And he kind of Hoffman's way or like Max Dembo's way kind of of like not letting him die alone, so to speak. I mean, it's really kind of sad, but kind of beautiful. Like it's, it's just one of those things that kind of clicks when you watch it. Yeah, I agree. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like they over, overplayed i think that's that's like one of those moments which i think ends up becoming like a cliche in like later like robbery movie or yeah like you said like in michael mann movies where it it has to become like you know like it's some piece of classical sculpture where he's gonna hold him or something you know um but he just yeah Yeah, he just kind of maintains this awkward distance that's kind of more true to to his character where he's he's kind of being pulled away but yeah, yeah, is obviously feels a little guilty. Um, that's straight time. Um, and uh, there was one other movie you, you had seen that I, I'd love to hear you talk about. Bless their little hearts, which is a a great film that's grouped with the L.A. Rebellion. Usually, what led you to uh, what led you to to watching this? Uh, now I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I've always been a pretty big fan of like milestone films work like Dennis Doros and you know just what he does over there and um you know as as a budding cinephile back in the day I kind of obviously Killer of Sheep was a huge deal when they had that restoration that came out and I remember I actually went to UCLA to to go see uh the screening there and then kind of from there I, I learned about um uh Kent McKenzie's The Exiles which was like another thing that milestone also did and then I kind of reached out actually to Dennis Doros over there you know, Milestone had did this restoration of this like lost silent film that actually it was like an all like native cast. It was it, like it wasn't a Western, but it was like, you know, people in like regalia and kind of set in, I guess you could say not pre-contact, but kind of like pre-reservation that era and stuff. Um, and I found out actually like my great great grandfather was in that film. Like I saw it. I saw it in the little like Netflix preview thing when it was up. Um, it was this film called Daughter of Dawn. But yeah, I, I'd reached out to him and I kind of like was talking with Dennis back and forth about the film. Like he was asking me some information about like my great, great grandfather. And 
and I think it was like around that time too. Like, I think, uh, you know, Milestone was having like a sale and I was just kind of going through all the different, you know, titles of theirs that I like, I'd maybe heard of and, and just like, maybe not really seen, but like bless their little hearts was like definitely one of the, the top ones, because I think I do remember when they did the restoration of that, which was a couple years ago, I had some, like, I know Alison Andrews, the, the filmmaker she had done, uh, I think it was like an essay for the release or something like that. And, um, yeah, I kind of just revisited it. And I, I saw something recently, like Steve McFarlane had posted up, I think it was an interview he did with Billy Woodbury a couple of years ago. And so I kind of just like took advantage of the sale. I got the, I got the, uh, the DVD and yeah, I was kind of blown away. It was like another kind of, um, under the radar LA classic. I think it's, I believe it's shot in Inglewood, but you know, it's about a man named Charlie Banks who kind of is not really able to, to find any sort of steady employment or a job. And uh, his wife is kind of the one who's, you know, paying the bills and she's working and um, kind of sort of in his, um, I guess you could say his search for a job and kind of just like, you know, questioning himself, he ends up sort of having an affair with this other woman. And then his wife finds out about it and kind of, you know, leads to a bit of an eruption. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think, you know, especially people are going to be comparing it to Killer of Sheep, but it's it's really unique. I mean, it's like a totally it's obviously a very different film. It's just sort of connected regionally and just by sort of that movement, but it's like a really criminally underseen film. It's a really touching film. Yeah, it, it it is. And I mean, even I almost feel like killer of sheep in some ways is not as well, it's absurd to say it, but it's not as, as, as well known. It's not as part of Canon for lack of a better word, as, yeah. as it should be in, in discussions and how people talk about new food, new movies, even mm-hmm. uh, that are indebted to it. But, uh, what would you say is is kind of distinct and and, and different about um, bless their little hearts it, it compared to killer of sheep? Yeah, you know they both are kind of looking at like a very you know specific like socioeconomic class, and I mean very much in you know the same region. I mean one killer of sheep is in Watts, I believe, and with this one I think being in Inglewood, it's like they're kind of they're not too far away from each other. But I think it's it's a lot different in the sense that I I feel like bless their little hearts is much more, I wouldn't say like it's a chamber drama, but it's like, it's so much of that film is just like in that house that they're in and kind of like, you know, and then when he goes to like his mistress's place, it's, it switches over a little bit. Uh, But so much of that film is just like in the interiors of these homes where I kind of feel like with killer of sheep, it's, it's as much as kind of about what's going on outside of the, the main family's home and, you know, just the geography of the neighborhood and, you know, these kids, jumping around and like having rock fights and that sort of stuff. And bless their little hearts is it just feels very much kind of like it's what sort of goes on behind closed doors to a certain extent. And I mean, again, too, just even sort of just given sort of the nature of how his wife reacts when she finds out about his, um, his affair, and then even kind of how he acts differently with uh, his mistress and things like that. It's, and even just like, I think kind of how it gets down to him too, where there's like that really moving scene where he's like in the kitchen with his kids and he's kind of like confessing to them what he did. And he's like crying and asking for, you know, their forgiveness and stuff like that. There's just so much of that film is just kind of about what's going on, you know, on the inside. And I think it's, that's kind of, I would say a bit more of its sort, sort of its distinction where I think Killer of Sheep is a bit more about kind of like interactions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Nate Hardman is the actor who plays the father and he just has a, such a weight to him that he can bring. I really like how the movie starts out because it lets you kind of live with him in public in a way you're just seeing him, you know, filling out some annoying forms at the like employment office. Um, and there's just mm-hmm. jazz playing. And so you're just watching him and it's almost like you're just watching him as a person on the street. That's kind of how you you get to know him, and it's just something you get to know him through his motions and 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 and, and that. And I, I like that as a way of introducing him because that's a big strength, the way he carries himself, and you know, standing in doorways in the house. I think you're so right about what goes on behind closed doors. He can convey emotion yeah. almost just by how how he's like framing a room or, or you know approaching a room. Yeah, and it's like it's also it's one of those things too where it's like. You know, I mean, if you grow up like, you know, not having a bunch of money, there's like, you know, just stuff you can like recognize in that film that like, you know, for me, it was like kind of a a, a bit of like, <laughs> like some flashbacks, just like 
you know, like his wife is just always kind of like, it doesn't take much to like, you know, just make her fed up kind of of like what's going on all the time. But you know, it's not just, it's like so much of what's going on outside of that house that's just sort of like weighing down on her because she has to be the person that is keeping things going and that's it. And there is sort of the thing of the resignation that Nate Hardman kind of has at a certain point where he's just like, I'm, I forget how long he said, there's that one moment where he does say how long, how many years he's been like looking for steady employment and it's just not coming around. And it's, yeah, you just like feel the stress that that whole family is feeling the entire time. But it's like something that, you know, they've been living with for so long and it's, it's not something that has like gone away at all. It's just like, it's a reality that informs how they're trying to, to move, but at the same time also try to be a family in spite of all that. Yeah, you really feel the just the weariness, you know, in in your bones just watching. And there's a nice little detail. I mean, maybe I misread it, but when he's checking in on his wife who's sleeping, having just worked at her job, you know, she says, how are the kids? And he immediately kind of tells her, you know, they're fine. Everything's good. Because I think he doesn't want her to be worried and like wake up and have to fuss over them. He like wants her to get like that extra little bit of peace that that she can from sleep. I I, I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. And then the kids, of course, one of the daughters, the older daughter, she's basically working because she's, you know, preparing food. Mm -hmm. And a little detail there is the stove having what looks like a, a wire hanger to like keep the door closed. It is yeah, very finely observed. Yeah. You get that there's like no privacy at all in that, in like that house too. Just, I mean, it's like, everything is just so like, it's the way it's framed too, but it's also just like, you just get the sense of like how cramped that house is just the environment itself and how it's sort of like playing into the interior of what everybody's going through. Yeah. Yeah. This was like 1983. Where do you where do you kind of um, fit this in, in in like the time period? I'd have to look again at the date, but I remember it like it was finished like a couple years prior. But it just took I think Woodbury a couple of years to like get some of the last bits of financing or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I would say there's you know there's so many films from New York kind of of this era, kind of like turn of the 70s into the 80s that you can always kind of identify because there's just, there's so many images of that, but like within LA, it's interesting. Cause it's like, because the, the type of work that was coming out of the LA rebellion is like, so unlike anything else that was kind of out there. Like it's something that's also distinctly of the city in a lot of ways. Like I, I would argue like really even sort of with like the roots of the LA rebellion, it, it really is something that is for lack of a term, kind of like indigenous to like to the area it's really like a movement that I think when you look at it, it's like something where you're like, that's 100% LA. It's not like the kind of Hollywood LA, but just like, you know, if you're just driving around LA, it's like, you can see it's a style of storytelling and just sort of like that movement was so kind of on point with what was going on in the city versus kind of just like the, the larger presentations, which, you know, something even like going to straight time, straight time is like something that's like almost kind of in the same thing where there's something about how I think they just kind of capture the city at such a specific point. I'm always super glad that like LA kind of had its own thing outside of, you know, just Hollywood itself. Right. It's also not like it's being mined by like an outside eye for, you know, any kind of soulful alienation or something, you know, it's not like it's just a place and a story that's being deployed for a certain mood. It's so much more lived in um, than, than that. Yeah. It's not like an extractive nature. It's more just kind of like the way that they're telling this story and the environment is like, the environment's just there. It's not like the environment is being romanticized or something like that. That's, I think that's that's what it is, that, you know, having that element of, of romanticizing it. I was going to ask, what's another L.A. movie that you'd love if, if more people knew about or, or could see? Yeah. One, like, I, I'm always sort of, like, harping on because it's, like, just sort of, like, the intersection of, like, so many things I love is um, definitely, like, The Exiles, Kent McKenzie's film. That's Milestone. Same thing. It's kind of like sandwiched. The, their restoration was kind of sandwiched. Like I want to say it was like a year or two after they did the Killer of Sheep restoration. And then, you know, this was quite some time later. But The Exiles is like, I think to me, that's like kind of one of the most haunting kind of L.A. films. And it's really beautiful just because that very much is 
about like a part of the city that no longer kind of exists like that anymore. Um, and even like the the very sort of like neighborhood that it takes place in is like it flat out does not exist. It's like where the Disney concert hall is and like all the skyscrapers are now. They like they raised mm. it a couple of years after after they filmed. But then even also too that like the community, it's like the film centers on I believe it's 1961 or something. It's like somewhere around there. It centers on this this group of younger Native Americans that are living in uh, the city's Bunker Hill neighborhood, which is again like no longer there. I always like think of that film because it's like it's it's really crazy to me to watch a film and just look back and see people from my grandparents' generation living not just like in a city that I live in, but also just like kind of just like seeing them just kind of just being people like hanging out. And it's um, which I mean, for indigenous like sort of an indigenous image on film. It's like it's a revelation. I know Tom Anderson's Los Angeles plays itself is kind of like the point that a lot of people like rediscovered this film. It's interesting. They kind of touch on it a little bit in the film, but it's like it's it's such a specific look at a specific time and also just like kind of the effects of a lot of U.S. based policies around Native Americans of like how this even existed, where the the U.S. government used to have um, relocation policies where they would they take people from reservations and they tell them like, hey, if you move to these cities, like we'll provide you with jobs and like and housing and stuff like that. And the, the whole kind of aim was to kind of like de-indigenize them, so to speak, and to kind of, you know, just have them more integrated in the U.S. society and culture and stuff like that. And um, hmm. and also to kind of break families up um, to some extent, too. So it's interesting because it's just like when you're watching this film at first, you're like, why are there like just these Indians living in like in the middle of L.A.? And it's like all those people are kind of there as a result of a lot of those policies. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Just like there's nothing about that film that in terms of the landscape, really, that still really exists, like in the way that it did in there. There's like one bar where there's kind of like the bar in the the film. I think that that's the only thing that's really around there. And um, that film's like a kind of follows that format of like, you know, sort of like 12 hours or sort of like a night in the life of, and you watch that film and it's all, it's, it's almost kind of like an early Cassavetes film too, because it is like relatively improvised, but it's also kind of like not all the way fake. Like there's kind of just like, and the people in it are like not performers either. That film, I, I always think it's just to me is like mind blowing on so I, it's, I just still can't believe that that film exists. Yeah. Doesn't it have that kind of a wonderful scene where they're hanging out in a hill above this above the city? Yeah, it's where Dodger Stadium is now. So it's like it's like another part of it too, where you're like, oh, it's crazy. People could just like drive up there and like party, and it was like no big deal. <laughs> like it's like now, yeah. It's again now you can't do that. Yeah, Dodger Stadium is there. So that's crazy. Um, yeah, that's that's another movie that I, I I'm glad you brought that up because that's another movie that I feel like hasn't come around into critical dialogue as much as, as when it was going through the restoration. And uh, so, yeah, the, the exiles, I'm curious, I have to ask, cause you, you just mentioned that you, you were being interviewed or asked about, you said your great, great grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, there's this film again, like I know this is, this is kind of turned into like a something weird and milestone theme podcast yeah so there was this film called uh, daughter of dawn it was like 1920 but it was this film that they kind of did that was it's not like a western but it's just like about like native americans like living in oklahoma at the time and kind of about the the kiowa and comanche tribe which one of my tribes is kiowa but um anyways yeah they did the restoration of that it was on netflix for a little while and um you know like the little preview thing where you know you can see like some scenes from it or whatever it was like it was weird because I was like watching and I was like saw this guy in the background. I was like, that guy looks like really familiar. And like I'd, I'd heard about this film just around like, you know, sort of the the restoration and how it was like this film that had like a bunch of people from my tribe in it from like that time. And I guess I like looked at the the scene a little bit closer. I was like, oh, whoa, that's like my great great grandfather because I, I recognize it because my, my grandma has a portrait of him in, in her house. And like I asked my family, I was like, did you guys know? Like, am I crazy? This is this him in the film, or like, did you guys know about this? And they're like, "Oh yeah, we knew about this. We thought you knew about it." And I was like, "Why did nobody tell me about this? This is insane." So, <laughs> yeah. So like, I posted up something on Twitter about it, and Dennis Doros reached out. I had only ever kind of talked to him. This was like back when I was the curator at LACMA because um, 
you know, we'd like license some stuff from him. And so he had reached out and he was like, oh, that's so crazy. Like, you know, if you have some details, let us know. Cause I guess they, the, the film has a pretty big sort of like educational, like licensing, like demand or whatever. So like, I guess they have sort of like details on the different people in the film, but yeah, it was like, it was really crazy. Like watching that film. Cause it was just like, you know, I mean, I work in film and like no one in my family bothered to tell me about this film that apparently everybody else knew about, but not me. But um, it's, it's a really kind of surreal thing to see like somebody you like never knew, but like only kind of heard about and, you know, in a silent film, it's, it's pretty wild. So yeah, um, that's incredible. Some of the footage as well, too, and kind of that, that film that I have playing at, at Doc Fortnite, it's kind of like the sort of the center of that was sort of like me finding that out and kind of uh, it, it's like just interesting too. Cause like, yeah, there's a lot of people in that film that, you know, aren't around anymore, but like just sort of within the history of my tribe, it's like wild to see some of these people that like, you know, you only read about, or you've only seen photos and you actually like, you know, see them alive and doing things that don't exist anymore or just like are kind of practices that are fading out of, out of practice to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was a pretty wild and surreal moment. So. Yeah. yeah just quickly, can I, can I ask what is happening in, in the footage or what, what is happening in like the scene that you saw? It's like, there's kind of like the, the main character that's sort of like a love story, but like my great, great grandfather, he's like in three or four scenes. Um, he's kind of just like standing in the background. He's kind of just like sort of part of like the general sort of council of the tribe in the film. And I, the other part that uh, about that whole thing that was like super trippy to me was like, as I was like watching it, I want to say it was the second time or something, just kind of like studying that film is, you know, it's a silent film. So there's like the inner titles and everything like that explaining things. And But what's really interesting is like a lot of the tribes on the plains um, in particular, they had a, a form of sign language that was kind of an Esperanto because like they all spoke different languages, but you know, you'd be able to like, if you saw somebody, if you were Kiowa and you saw someone who was like Sue, they, or Lakota, um, you know, you'd be able to like talk to them with sort of this, this system of sign language and you, you know, you'd be able to have a conversation or, you know, figure out whatever you needed to figure out. But it's interesting because like in the film, like there's this whole kind of society that's been trying to bring back that form of communication. And like that film's actually been a huge tool for it because people like, like my grandma's generation still know some of like the the words or you know the sentences or how to communicate to some extent in it you do have some people that are like pretty fluent in it um they're, like, they're older but it's interesting because it's like when you watch that film and like just thinking about it you're like okay if you were kiowa or like from the plains of that time and you were to see a silent film and people are using sign language like they they do it in almost like every scene you'd be able to like figure out what these people are saying about like intertitles so it's like it and that's again to kind of the the film I have at Doc Fortnite is kind of this idea of like, what would it even be like if indigenous people of that time developed their own cinema? And it's like, you know, something that's not relying on intertitles and you can just like look at it and figure out what people are saying. And yeah, it was like, it's that film's pretty trippy. I mean, just for, you know, a lot of personal reasons, but then also just seeing it as this, this document of a lot of cultural things that are much like a lot of these other films we were talking about, like with LA or New York or whatever, where it's it's another sort of tool of film preserving something in a way that like, you know, kind of leaves it for for memory or for if people want to pick it up. Wow. That's that's really that's it's that's really I don't even have the words for that. That's really amazing. Yeah, it's almost like tri- time travel and, and, and connecting to the past. I always feel like that's kind of a thing of silent film, like one of you know, kind of the beautiful things about watching it is you're seeing something from such a different time, but then also like, I don't know, maybe this sounds a little too weird or morbid, but you know, you, when you're watching those films, it's like pretty much everyone is dead now, but it's just like, it's weird to watch kind of these just sort of ghostly figures living life to some extent, the way that they were or at least like a depiction of it. And it's, yeah, it's, it's even weirder to see like more surreal to see like somebody you're actually a descendant of in, in that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you weren't weren't expecting to <laughs> suddenly see them. Yeah. Well, I don't know what on earth I, I would follow that with. So I, I feel like that's a that's a really <laughs> a wonderful a wonderful place for us to conclude. Um just again to mention it in documentary Fortnite. Um that's where you can see this the short uh in the in the cousin program 
So be sure to watch it there. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I hope we can do, do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.